I think with that, I'd like to introduce our first keynote speaker, Mark Britz. And I'm going to take quite a bit of joy reading this bio. It's probably one of the best I've, uh, I've seen so far. But uh, Mark's fascination with money led him to a career in banking. But that does not only deny him the rich rewards he so justly deserves, but is trapped in a relentless search to understand its meaning. He studied economics as an undergraduate, and he now knows enough about economics to know that he does not know enough at all. He rather pursued a career as a treasury trader for a number of domestic and international banks that coincidentally no longer exist, <laughs> apparently due to no fault of his own. He would like to point out that, in his experience, the various depictions of, movie, of traders in movies are vastly or grossly overstated. With a Master's of Science in Financial Management from the University of London, he joined the Banking Association of South Africa 15 years ago, where he currently heads up the Prudential Division, engaging with standard setters, policymakers, regulators, and supervisors, both on the domestic and kind of international scale aiming to change the world of banking. He's also the executive director of the Center of Excellence in Financial Services, a think tank, a think tank rather, that produces research on issues of interest to the financial sector. Mark was raised in the kingdom of Zululand. However, uncharacteristically, he only has one wife and two children, <laughs> and is proud to call himself a banker. And with that, Mark, I'd like to hand over to you. Thank you. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for this opportunity to talk to you today, and a special thanks to the Actuarial Society of South Africa for making it possible. From the agenda, I see you will be exposed to a number of topics in the banking industry, and therefore I shall skillfully avoid discussing the actuarial sciences and the complexities of banking, rather focusing more generally on observations of the banking sector and what I perceive as an evolutionary path that is changing the role of banks in our society. Of course, these are simply my observations, and if correct, will only become clear in the future once we can look back at the actual events that shaped the history of banking. What I find useful in presentations of this sort that lack the visual appeal of a millennial is to share with you the message that I would like you to take away from this engagement. It also helps if you accidentally drift off to sleep whilst I'm talking. The key message is, that as we move towards a regulatory environment that enables direct economic interventions to shape social outcomes, there will be a dependency on big data for appropriate decision-making, and we must reflect on the quality of data being used, and as professionals, we must make sure the users of this data understand the assumptions and variables to avert unintended consequences, and whilst we as professionals must begin understanding the societal issues being addressed in order to add value to our contribution, we cannot be a passive bystander anymore. So why do I, so why do I say that the banking sector morphed into a moral police force? Perhaps as old as taxation itself is the countermeasure deployed by people in hiding their income from the authorities. The catalytic event for me in this transition to the moral police force was the introduction of anti-money laundering legislation. Governments around the world have battled to change the behavior of their citizens. Laws are being selectively ignored, and it's becoming more difficult to police and enforce what politicians deem to be good behavior. In the USA, the war on drugs was lost by the authorities. Billions of US dollars 
were spent on both military and diplomatic interventions. Unable to control the use of narcotic drugs by their citizens, the authorities were largely ineffective at controlling the production and distribution of these drugs. However, the profitability of this business was excessive, so the authorities changed their approach to that of following the money, the proceeds of crime. This became the first global initiative to address bad behavior by confiscating the money, and through this initiative, banks were given the added responsibility of anti-money laundering compliance. This was a significant event and heralded the first truly global cooperation amongst countries. Through the establishment of the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, as it is known colloquially in 1989, anti-money laundering became a reality as governments went after the proceeds of ill-gotten gains. The lifestyles of those living off their either illegal or untaxed income were impacted severely. The FATF recommendations, such as the criminalization of money laundering and the ability to confiscate the proceeds, are adopted by countries and monitored by mutual evaluations, making compliance with the recommendations a requirement to participate in the global financial system. Then came the tragedy of September 11, with 3,000 lives lost in a single act of terrorism, the focus of the authority shifted to terrorism financing. The banking sector was once again co-opted into the combating of financing of terrorism. Lists of potential and known terrorists and terrorist organizations are published, and banks are required to actively monitor their transactions to prevent any funding for those persons or organizations. The US OFAC list is not absolute, with organizations like Al-Qaeda having multiple spelling options. The challenge for banks is the expectation that a bank could prevent such atrocities, that somehow a person's finances provide a window into their lifestyle, and therefore, once interpreted, can provide much needed intelligence for law enforcement. The reality is that banks can only provide useful information on what happened up to an event by providing a financial roadmap of the activities of persons involved in terrorist activities, such as who paid for the 16 flying lessons of 9-11. The next global initiative was weapons of mass destruction. Banks are required to identify and stop any shipment of goods that could be used by certain nations to build weapons of mass destruction, such as machine lathes, pressure gauges, electric switches, etc. The challenge is how would a bank decide if a pipe is in fact just a pipe? Dr. Gerald Bull, a Canadian-born weapons expert with a dream to launch a satellite with a giant gun, shipped what was disclosed as pipes to South Africa in the late 1970s, which were in fact gun barrels for the Arms Corps G5 long-range howitzer cannons. I recently asked the question of an international panel in Hungary as to how a bank could determine a consignment of pipes was not gun barrels without physically measuring the internal and external dimensions of the pipe. They seemed surprised that we would have to do that. In South Africa, the responsibility for identifying and preventing what is termed illegal internet gambling has also been deferred to the banking sector. The opening of accounts for internet-based casino operations and credit card transactions with these casinos are all within the scope of bank surveillance. In 2009, the estimated gross winnings of 320 million was paid to South Africans from online gambling. Every transaction must be investigated, which can introduce substantial cost, especially when customers transact services with casinos that are not related to internet gambling, such as room reservations or restaurant services. My personal favorite is the FATF requirement to monitor politically exposed persons or PEPs, the objective being to root out corruption. In South Africa, it was expanded to politically influential persons or PIPS by parliament to deflect away from the intention of trapping politicians. 
to also including those private sector companies and individuals that provide goods and services to the state. It is far-reaching, trapping those that are related and associated to PIPs. Like the Sword of Damocles, the Financial Intelligence Center Act provided a clear and present danger to the previous administration and ultimately provided the banking sector with the ability to shut bank accounts of a prominent family in South Africa, delivering a formidable blow to the culture of corruption that had embedded itself in our political system. It is my favorite because overnight banking became real and I was receiving accolades from frustrated friends and family as an unknowing participant in this unfolding drama. Admittedly, my sudden and dramatic popularity should be measured from a very low base. The banking industry provided the only hope that there was a counterweight to the perceived depth of corruption, a story that still must be written. The celebration was short-lived, of course, and I returned to having to defend the banking industry again. What was important for me was the ability of the banking sector to act, and decisively so, by cutting off the funding through the careful surveillance on transactions. In addition to these initiatives, we are tasked with the identification and prevention of anything related to child pornography, ranging from the production and sale to the purchase thereof. In addition, the South African Revenue Services can appoint the banks as the agent to collect outstanding tax revenues. Banks provide this function for foreign governments as well. The United States Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, or FATCA, requires South African banks to identify U.S. taxpayers and report specific information to the U.S. Internal Revenue Services. Identifying what a U.S. citizen is is surprisingly difficult and is combined with the substantial penalties for non-compliance. Another initiative to meet the U.S. political agenda was global sanctions on Iran. South, Africa financial South African financial institutions were required to stop financing petroleum products and non-petroleum trade with Iran, excluding food and medical supplies. Failure to comply would result in the suspension of all correspondent banking relationships with U.S. banks. SWIFT was also approached to remove all Iranian banks from its facilities. Through international initiatives adopted locally, you now have a moral police force, the banking sector, monitoring and preventing those persons from abusing the financial system through activities that are deemed to be not in the interests of society. Nothing to do with the simple function of a bank, that of intermediating deposits and borrowers. Importantly, all of this is achieved at considerable cost that needs to be borne by the banking consumer. How do I see the transformation from a moral police force to a social engineer? This part requires a little attitude and some poetic license, as I believe we're still on this journey. The global financial crisis has received much attention, and there are probably more books written on this subject than religion. What was an important lesson from this era for me was that politicians don't like paying for these failures under their watch. Regulators and supervisors were not in a position to respond, and at the time, the rapid decline in confidence in the financial system rivaled that of the Great Depression. It is also interesting that politicians were able to deflect their involvement in the global financial crisis, an important point that I'll return to later. The global financial crisis demonstrated that there was no single point of failure that could be isolated and corrected. The contagion effect proved that the system that we trusted had multiple points of weakness, and all that was required was an extreme event to trigger a progressive, system-wide global failure. The approach taken to address the weakness of the financial sector is being scripted by the G20 through their Financial Stability Board. Layer upon layer of prudential and market conduct regulation has been proposed and implemented with little or no global coordination. Each standard setter and policymaker working tirelessly to solve the entire financial crisis through their unique lens. But it's easy to see why. 
According to the International Monetary Fund, in 2009, it was estimated that the financial crisis cost 12 trillion US dollars. Simply put, at that time, it was the equivalent of levying a once-off tax of 23,000 rand on every man, woman, and child in the world. Estimated job losses from this crisis vary between 5 to 7 million. These estimates are compounded by slow recoveries in the major economies, giving further impetus to the political determination to identify the weaknesses that caused the financial crisis and to regulate them. In the process of setting standards for banks, the financial markets, the net was cast wide in every possible contributing factor from the conduct and culture of organizations and their remuneration policies, better loss-absorbing capital and liquidity buffers, to resolution regimes was introduced. Nothing was left to chance. In my view, where Basel II was more about efficiently allocating capital to risk and perhaps shifting risk away from the banking sector, the global financial crisis taught us that banks can never be truly shielded from financial risk. Basel III incorporated these experiences and a regulatory framework was designed to make banks more resilient and able to absorb external financial shocks. So where in this is the social engineering? Well, it can come in several guises. Within the Basel framework are tools that can require banks to build up capital during good times rather than paying out shareholders. There are capital triggers that, if breached, can result in dividends being suspended. Credit markets that are deemed overheated could attract capital liquidity add-ons, even as granular as home loans to certain suburbs. These are powerful tools that can shape economic activity and, by extension, socially engineer an outcome. The National Credit Regulator monitors and intervenes in credit granting of the banks. Two themes emanate from their actions. The first is that people must be protected from becoming over-indebted, where their disposable income is largely being used to service financial commitments. The second is when a person becomes over-indebted, then there must be a mechanism to relieve the burden and, if possible, reposition the person so that they can enter into the credit market again. The planned introduction of a deposit insurance in South Africa will increase the safety net for depositors up to 100,000 rand per person per bank. Deposit insurance will, through the resolution process, enable individuals and businesses to access these funds through another bank, much like Nedbank will facilitate the payout of VBS Bank customers. The introduction of recovery plans for each bank provides a tool for prudential authority to intervene where the bank is in distress and to write down debt instruments to provide sufficient loss absorption. The resolution plan for each bank will provide a detailed roadmap of systems, personnel and critical functions that need to be retained in the interests of a broader financial stability. Here the South African Reserve Bank will be able to prefer certain classes of depositor and split the bank into a good bank worth saving and the bad bank that would be placed into creatorship, usually to the detriment of shareholders. The recent failure of African Bank tested this process and the banking sector was expected to step in and recapitalize the good bank. I return to the comments I made earlier about politicians and my view about their role in the financial crisis, that perennial conflict between politics and economics. Simply put, politics and economics battle to coexist in harmony, and I'm reminded of the quote by the American economist Thomas Sowell, who described the conflict as, the first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to fully satisfy those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. Politicians survive on votes and have to make promises that sometimes are whimsical by their very nature. Delivery on those promises can be based on economic ideologies that do not exist in reality. They are sometimes copied from countries that have demonstrated success without any consideration for the weakness of our own situation. 
with dysfunctional societies and tepid economic activity. Yet we aspire to these goals. In South Africa, we struggle with our own unique historical challenges and have been unable to make lasting impression of change in the welfare of the general population. The National Development Plan, although aspirational with its lofty objectives of reducing unemployment and eradicating poverty by 2030, proved a useful integrated plan that allowed each department and government to work towards achieving their individual contribution, safe in the knowledge that they would contribute meaningfully towards the vision of a new South Africa. I was excited about the prospect of developing a scorecard, a means of measuring the performance of the economy against the NDP. The opportunity to identify shortfalls and begin taking corrective measure to realign the process. The scorecard would have provided a much needed barometer of government performance and perhaps provided a tool to measure the success or failure of policies and their implementation. Unfortunately, if you cannot measure the impact, you cannot monitor and take corrective action. Despite the NDP being the only plan for South Africa, it was never to be the actual plan. We have been denied an opportunity to celebrate our successes. We've been denied an opportunity to discuss our failures. We've been denied an opportunity to recalibrate the targets based on the reality of our country's situation. We've been denied the opportunity to manage the expectations of society. The separation of fiscal policy from monetary policy is another important tool in balancing political aspirations. We continue to witness the unraveling of the activities of the previous administration and wonder how this could have happened. What I am confident of is that the South Africa cannot afford a financial crisis. It will simply destroy any ability we may have to catch up with global economic growth. Maintaining confidence in the financial sector and rebuilding confidence in government will require policy certainty. Policy certainty is a minimum requirement for attracting investment, which is a precursor to infrastructure development and business activity that leads to job creation and a better lifestyle. It is as simple and as complex as that. We must not forget that we are dependent on foreign savings to achieve our transformational objectives, and therefore investment is a catalyst, not job creation. Perhaps the most pivotal institution for the banking sector and the custodian of confidence is the South African Reserve Bank, and by extension, the new Prudential Authority. These institutions must remain independent and capable of regulating the bank and insurance industries, together with their broader financial stability mandate. Constitutionally independent, we simply cannot allow the central bank to become an arm of the political system. We have come perilously close to losing this principle, and we must ensure that we remain vigilant going forward. It is equally important to address concerns around the ownership of the central bank, licensing requirements of banks, as well as the establishment of a state bank. These issues have featured prominently in the media and have been able to deflect attention away from the important issues around state capture and corruption, but in the same breath have become somewhat tainted by these very issues. Many state-owned entities serve as a reminder of how badly things can go wrong and how costly it is to repair. But we must deal with these concerns in a constructive manner once their value proposition becomes tangible. It's not good enough to simply desire change because we cannot achieve what we want with the existing structures. We need to have realistic economic and social objectives that underpin these interventions based on a clear understanding of the banking system and its role in society. There are some notable failures in social engineering. We have moved from the let the buyer beware model, where consumers are responsible for the, decision, the, the decisions they take, to a let the seller beware model, where the consumer has reduced responsibility for their decisions. An important tool in preventing predatory selling, but perhaps taken too far. We, have, we therefore have a policy decision to interrogate reckless lending 
potentially holding the financial institution accountable for the future financial affairs of individuals who have enjoyed the benefits of other people's savings but are now unable to meet their debt repayments. Debt relief must be accommodated through a debt review process that limits the impact to the borrower and transfers the cost back to the lender. A further intervention to expunge bad credit records held by credit bureaus reduce the ability of banks to discriminate against those borrowers who have demonstrated they have not been able to meet their contractual obligations. This is based on the notion that banks should lend again to these individuals to stimulate economic activity. The latest initiative to expunge consumer debt by banks simply writing off the debt of consumers is being opposed by banks and continues the cautionary narrative that retail lending is a challenging market to be in. I interpret the credit policy for South Africa as Please lend aggressively to get the economy going, but don't discriminate against anyone based on their previous experiences. However, if the borrower considers themselves in financial distress, you must assist the customer or write off the debt. Then please provide them with credit again. The anti-money laundering implementation for South Africa came at great cost because of the policy decision not to use a risk-based approach. Years later, after much debate, it's now time to move to a risk-based approach at an additional cost. The Know Your Customer regime could be centralized if the Department of Home Affairs could take ownership of the responsibility to identify our citizens and provide access to this information. In a world of open API, this provides new opportunities for efficiency. The government grant system is another policy decision that intentionally did not use the banking sector for distributing grants. Today, after many interventions, SASA is engaging with the banks to resolve the crisis. I can only interpret these few interventions as a form of social engineering that has failed because of the one-sided political desire to make a difference. The requirement of the Office of the President to perform economic impact studies on all pieces of legislation becomes a moot point if you don't have the data to support the policy, understand either the mechanics of finance or the potential unintended consequences of the decisions taken. Racial and gender transformation is another example of social engineering that has lacked the evidence of quality data that would enable us to celebrate our achievements. And we would celebrate what we have achieved while understanding the limitations and opportunities. The Banking Association is committed to addressing the collation of data independently of the Financial Sector Charter Council to begin addressing this important social narrative. If there's one thing that I've learned from my time in the banking sector is that policymakers and regulators will not change their position even if they know they're wrong, despite the consequences of transferring the cost to the economy. What is required is more collaboration around policy between those that formulate policy, those that implement policy, and those that have to work within the policy. To this juncture, at this juncture, it's important to note that the South African banking sector has for many years enjoyed a working relationship with the central bank, in particular the previous bank supervision department, that is in my view unmatched in, by any jurisdiction anywhere in the world. The engagements are robust and technical, with the benefit to the regulator of being able to understand the challenges experienced by the banks, whilst the banks are better able to understand the policy being implemented. In some instances, I've witnessed the banks challenging the central bank by proposing more onerous standards that meet the methodologies deployed within the bank. The reason for making this observation is that it is possible for the regulated entity and regulator to engage without suffering the perils of regulatory capture. The lesson learned from this experience is that more policy discussion needs to be entertained ahead of public consultation, where it becomes too embarrassing or challenging to amend. A good example of that was the Companies Act, the only act that I know of that had a total of 108 amendments before it was enacted. 
The fourth industrial revolution, this digital catalyst, has not only introduced opportunities for efficiency, but also challenged the authority of governments. Blockchain and the rise of Bitcoin removed the absolute power vested in national currencies. Privacy of transactions was assured, and cross-border payments were now possible, making exchange controls irrelevant. This evolution, combined with crowdfunding platforms and other steps to disintermediate the financial experience, particularly banking, meant governments were less able to directly influence lending and saving activity, screened for anti-money laundering and terrorism financing obligations. The natural reaction of government is to regulate. Armed with the obligations confirmed by the politicians to ensure the global financial crisis does not manifest again, central banks and regulators around the world are now tasked with systemic risk oversight. Combining this with the global policy objective to root out bad practices or treat customers fairly and financial inclusion, this culminates in an overarching mandate to regulate anything and everything that has a financial lens. It extends from those financial activities outside the banking sector, like shadow banking and digitalization in the form of fintech, to advertising and social media, along with the more traditional banking activities. Regulating te regulatory technology and evolution of fintech has emerged as the next big thing for the supervision of data-rich financial institutions. At the recent launch of the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, the thematic was split between intrusive regulation and data demands. The, they plan to move from a reactive regulator to a proactive regulator using big data analytics. Regulatory technology, or RegTech, is the final element of the social engineering narrative, providing access to the data of the entire market, potentially in real time if you wish to be in a position to manage a systemic crisis, providing a wealth of information that could, when combined with existing legislative powers, provide an opportunity to shape society through the financial sector and more specifically, the banking industry. This is not a new concept. I remember a meeting not too long ago with the ANC Economic Policy Committee at which it was reaffirmed that it has always been a policy that the banking sector was targeted as a tool for transformation. At the Center of Excellence, we're doing research into RegTech, and as data analytics reaches the apex of the Gartner hype cycle, the trough of disillusionment awaits. It's not the analytics that makes for competent social engineer. It's the quality of the data. The introduction of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision document called BCBS 239 on risk data aggregation has been adopted by the banking sector. Through this process of implementation, it is clear that the data collected by the banks needs much work as to be able to ensure that it is fit for the purpose of a broader mandate. Data quality and taxonomies of data remain a major concern. The expectation that a single view of customers effective is hampered by a number of issues. It is interesting for me to have a discussion with experienced bankers as to what is a deposit. If we want to measure, we better have a clear understanding of what it is amongst everyone. A significant step forward may be to embrace a digital identity for each and every South African. It will not only reduce the burden of proof, but will enable biometric solutions. My dog can pick me out in a crowd and she doesn't require my ID book or proof of address. If we can overcome the duplication of effort, and break the cycle of distrust, we can collaborate on this issue and many others to the benefit of society. Those that have nothing to hide will experience only efficiency gains. Those that need to hide will obfuscate and defer for as long as possible. Armed with accurate data, policymakers will have to concede that not everything is possible. However, some traditional methodologies may need to be reconsidered. It is convenient to fall back on principles that have become universal truths. Take the measurement of concentration, 
Concentration creates dominant firms that can extort high prices and or collude. Applied to the banking sector, the mathematics evidences exactly that. But no thought is given to the highly regulated nature of the banking system. The Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, which dates back to 1952 and was used in the steel industry in the United States, is one such popular measure. But that was before the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision introduced the first capital accord, or Basel I, in 1988 that standardized banking across the world. Before the completion of Basel II in 2008, before Basel III captured the global financial crisis in 2013, and before recovery and resolution, conduct and culture, but to name a few. Yet in the minds of policymakers, these measures are tried and tested. Banking is measured today as if the last 60-odd years have made no difference. At the Center of Excellence, we have started looking into these measurements and will hopefully provide a better understanding in due course. As I wrap up, but before I conclude, it is important to note that populism has consumed many countries, including South Africa, as we offer unattainable objectives in exchange for votes. This is not only a South African phenomenon. It is a global pandemic of change that is being led by a desire to search for an easy way out from where we've ended up. But where we are today in South Africa, with all its complexity, its legacy, its aspirations, is unfortunately exactly where we want to be. It is not by accident, it's by design. We are here because of all the policy decisions, regulations, corporate actions and personal decisions taken either individually or in concert with others, knowingly or otherwise. We are here, where we are today is precisely where we deserve to be. It not only includes our actions, but also our inability to act. As the world enjoys the third mineral resource boom, we continue to discuss how we're going to address a mining charter for the future, probably when the resource boom has ended. It is clear to me that a realistic social compact between society, government and business needs to be developed to establish rational expectations and rational obligations for all who wish to participate in this economy and this society. The banking sector is inextricably linked to the fortunes of our economy providing a lifeblood of finance that shapes economic activity. Banks don't create jobs. We finance entrepreneurs, innovators, and businesses who then create jobs for our people. But not just any entrepreneur, not just any innovator, not just any business. Those that have the ability to use other people's money that has been entrusted to the banks and pay it back with interest. As we enter the new world of work and turn to big data analytics as an exciting new opportunity, to uncover the hidden evidence necessary to develop real solutions, we will increasingly depend on data to answer the questions being posed by society. Here I refer to the political promises that need to be tempered against the economic realities that are not that easy to evidence. It is important, therefore, that as, prof as professionals, you carve out an appropriate role for yourselves in shaping our economy, not their economy, our economy, our society, as we are asked to do more. We must have the conviction to challenge conventional wisdom, but retain the maturity not to change because we can, but rather because we must. We must have the humility to acknowledge those elements of our society that do contribute, however unpalatable that may be. We must elevate our profession to more than just the mechanics of models, being trapped by capital parameters or liquidity requirements. And to do that, we need to embrace our social challenges by actively participating in these debates providing thoughtful solutions, not just as bankers or part of the broader financial sector, but importantly as regulators and policymakers in the government as well. These are pivotal entities that will over time become more important to our society as they begin getting it right. 
As custodians of data, we must remain alive to the notion that figures never lie, but liars can figure. Algorithms and models contain variables that require subjectivity, estimation, or common sense. These will be exploited by those with an agenda. In search of facts, many economic and political actors will not feel comfortable with the estimations and will push for certainty. You must stay true to your profession and ensure the uncertainty is understood and acknowledged. As we rapidly transition to a new world order of digitalization and analytics, it may no longer be possible to learn something about the future from the information of our past. The world is changing. But if we are truly entering a new world order, and if regulators and supervisors will become the gatekeepers of our successful transition to a new society, then who will be accountable for the financial failure of the future? We held the auditors responsible for Enron, and they quickly changed their behavior, deflected accountability, and increased their cost to society. We built our financial system around the independent rating agencies, and with the global financial crisis, they are now regulated, and ratings are now more conservative and costly to society. Regulators and supervisors with increased responsibility are legally immune from prosecution, while the politicians, with their random social experiments and political promises, have to be voted out of office. Financial institutions will now be indemnified as they become for-profit utilities. Like the last failure, the bearer of the cost will be you and me. So the time is now for us all to become involved and to use our skills to contribute positively towards a better South Africa for all its citizens. Banking may become the battleground for the soul of our society. Perhaps a little dramatic, but whatever the outcome, the next decade will be the most exciting in banking history. You can now wake up as I conclude. I want you to reflect on the following statement that I will make. There is no country in the world that celebrates mediocrity quite like South Africa. I want you to think about how you can contribute to changing that statement with the facts. Whether, you have, whether we have politicians using regulators to serve their political agenda or just tough regulators, we need to make sure that those tasked with taking decisions understand the quality of the data being used, understand the assumptions and can infer potential unintended consequences and above all, as professionals, you must begin understanding these societal issues so that your contribution adds value. I leave you with a quote from Dr. Zeus who envisaged this very moment. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know and you are the one who will decide where to go. I wish you a productive conference. Mark, thanks so much for that brilliant uh, speech. Um, I'd like to open the floor to any questions that you may have. So please raise your hand and we can uh, pose them to Mark. Take out my wallet. Anya? Did you hear me? I spoke very fast. Eh? <laughs> um, what is BASA currently working on in terms of policy and data and helping policymakers actually do something good for the community? Interesting question. I mean, the Banking Association usually responds to the challenges of the day. So apart from BCBS 239, where we're trying to work through the expectations of how data will be recorded and passed through, we're working on Popia. I believe it's Popia, not Poppy. For some reason, they don't like that. Uh, personal information, GDPR. 
We are going to start working on transformation data, which has become very, very difficult to collect, particularly in the, in the area of ownership of banks. And we're looking at doing a little bit more um, in terms of other broader social data collection initiatives. So we are involved with regulators and policymakers. Unfortunately, the, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority approached me and suggested that as we move into deposit insurance, where we're going to have to provide real-time data, that we should just sort of arrange to have their data added to that request. And you can't build systems if you don't know what you are going to be reporting. All right. Their view of the world is that they are going to be looking for real-time information on information on individuals across organizations, across products. So these are the sort of conversations that we're going to have with the Financial Sector Conduct Authority and to make sure that they understand what we already collect so that they can leverage some of the stuff that we're doing rather than reinventing the wheel and providing us with something that's unattainable. I think I, I have a question. Excellent. Um, I mean, reflecting on your points of social engineering, kind of the political aspects, uh, kind of like almost the, ri the global rise of populism, and kind of balancing it out, perhaps not balancing it out, but perhaps reflecting on the importance of kind of social transformation from both the kind of a racial and gender kind of arena. The one question I have and kind of that I always wonder about is perhaps, a, it's perhaps hairy, but land expropriation, specifically in the South African context. And what it would mean for banks? Um, and what your view is? Um, I mean, the first thing that I think of is how you price for credit risk in an environment where the kind of the surety is completely taken away. Um, what are the conversations around how debt will be, be handled? Is it just kind of like you mentioned previously that you know, debt will be wiped out and people will be free to, 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 to lend again? I'd love to hear your view. So all of these social experiments, as I call them, um, have a cost. And it's really about making sure that the politicians understand the cost associated with it. Uh, we're very much against uh, expunging debt, simply because that is our asset book. When you look at land, you know, we have to remember where we've come from. The previous government, the previous administration, had a very different view of the world. They left the current administration with a bit of a hair-raising situation, right? I mean, you ended up having to pay for school fees at universities, and we saw the VAT rate go from 14 to 15 percent. There was no other way of doing anything. When you start talking about expropriation without compensation. It's very broad. It actually exists already in the Constitution. The conversation so far, as I understand it, has gone to the point at which the expropriation is around um, land that could be used for farming, but is being held for investment purposes. It's buildings that are abandoned and could be remodeled by somebody to create housing. So it's that extreme area of expropriation without compensation. It is no intention to expropriate residential properties, to expropriate on, uh, you know, the sort of intellectual property, etc. It's really at the margin at the moment. Our concern would be, is starting at the margin, things tend to drift. And, you know, building a society around a president that has the right moral value for the future is not a guarantee, so we are concerned. But, you know, the costs to the country are huge if you start abandoning uh, the simple principles of contract. Anybody else? Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for the talk. 
Uh, just um, one or two questions. Um, how far are we from, or if possible, from a digital ID, and who do you think should own that? So on a, on a digital ID, I think we're still away. Uh, I don't think it's really being taken seriously by government. And I would, I would start by saying the Department of Home Affairs. They should be the ones that are running it. I mean, government should know every citizen and know who they are. You've got an ID book. Converting that to digital is probably a big step, but it requires the biometrics to be understood. And if we can integrate the biometrics into the products, there's no reason why a digital ID shouldn't work. You know, cyber is always a concern. I mean, cybercrime is a big thing, digital theft, you know, identity theft and so forth. But if we allow it to happen, I think there will be a, a benefit to all South Africans. I mean, overseas you can open a bank account. I mean, in, in India, for example, they have biometrics, one and a half million people or something. You can open a bank account with your thumb. You know, that, that's a hell of a lot easier than bringing a proof of address. And, and to be honest, you know, banks don't need to know where you live, eh? I mean, we don't really care. And if you're going to have a motor car and your salary gets paid into my bank account, then all that happens is as long as your salary gets paid and I get my bite, and you can drive your car anywhere you want. I don't need to know where you live. But what I can tell you is that some of the banks will do digital, uh, they will test you digitally, and they will check your IP addresses. They will see where you sleep at night by just pinging your cell phone. Maybe your wife doesn't know, but the bank will know. And, that's the, and this, is the, this is where it's... I promise you, this is where it's getting to, that the, the amount of information that is out there is huge. You'll find some of your banks, if you log on on your wife's uh, laptop or somebody else's laptop, they'll actually phone you because the actual address of that device is not registered with them. It's not where you usually log on at the usual time. And that's where digitalization is going to. Digital ID, I think we're still a little bit way away, but certainly it's something that we need to pr promote actively. Thanks, Mark, for that very insightful talk. <laughs> Luckily, I, I suspect no one here has to worry about uh, their self pinging kind of where they are and sending their details or location to their wife or husband. 